Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and I actually made an A in my college statistics class. Ooh. Although, if you had been in the, in the house where I lived when I grew up, going to high school, trying to learn math, you would have thought I was never going to make it. It was bad. I'm Misty, and I'm getting over being sick, so I want to apologize for my voice for everybody. Sorry. And I barely passed college algebra, so we are not mathletes. We're not, which is funny because your sister is a math teacher, and my dad is a professional engineer. When my sister graduated, she said she was a mathematician now. (laughs) Man, my dad tried so hard to help me learn math when I was younger. It just wasn't happening? I was... there was a lot of screaming on my part <laughs> and a lot of people telling my dad he was a saint. Oh, Yeah. So today we're going to talk to you about math. Uh, we're going to take you to math class. We have... As best as we can. <laughs> we're not going to teach you any math, by the way. Uh, but we are going to talk about uh, math education for women in some of our favorite female mathematicians and math experts and we have a guest spot from a podcast that's all about women in science and math so i want to start just again with history yay history of course and i just want to do a real brief overview of education in general for women in the united states yeah so we're gonna go all the way back to 1814 1814 yep can i take a nap Sure. Just wake me up when you get to the, <laughs> to the interesting modern parts. age. Yes. All right. Well, I want to talk to you about a lady named Emma Willard. Emma Willard. Yes. Okay. Um, so she is going to be encouraged by her father to pursue education, which was unusual for the time, but she gave it up because she wanted to get married. So she gets married. She sets up her home. But then in 1814, she decides she wants to open a female seminary in her home. Now, this is different from seminaries today. When we think seminary, we think what? Where you go to school to learn to be a priest. Right. So this is a little different. Um, A seminary at the time meant advanced learning. So we would probably think high school. But the problem was she couldn't get the education she needed from Millbury College in order to open the seminary. They wouldn't allow her in. So she's going to go before the legislature of New York. And she is going to ask that women be allowed to enter colleges. And you want to guess how that went over? Smashingly. No problems whatsoever. Everyone was like, why? Thank you for bringing this to our attention. Women can't go to college? Well, we need to immediately rectify that. I wish that was the case. That's not what happened? That's not what happened. Okay. Um, so she puts together a pretty well-reasoned argument. And- Which is... Women should go to college. I don't need any more reasons or arguments. (laughs) Again, no. Okay. Um, Basically, she's going to talk about this idea of the Republican motherhood. So one reason you want women to be educated is so that they can be good stewards of the American way of life and they can raise their sons to be good citizens. Because women can't vote yet, right? Right. But we need educated mothers to have educated sons and therefore we have educated voters. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, she's playing to the self-interest of these men. uh, No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the legislature hears her out and then they like immediately vote it down because they don't agree with her. Get that lady out of here. Yes. But the governor, Dwight Clinton, or sorry, DeWitt Clinton, he actually did agree with her. 
Um, mostly because of the Republican motherhood argument, not because he really thought women so the, in the idea own, that, be educated. that to raise smart male voters, yes, we need smart women to raise them. Yes. So he agreed with her, but only in a way to reinforce very stringent gender roles. Exactly. Okay. So he's going to get the town of Troy to support Willard, and they're going to raise $4,000, which at the time is a pretty good sum of money. And in September of 1821, she gets to open her doors of her seminary to 90 female students. Now, they're mostly upper class. They're all white. So we have a lot of inclusivity issues here. Um, But it is opening the door of education to women in a formalized way. Mm -hmm. Have we had education for women before this? Of course. But it was household by household. So maybe my parents thought it was important that I learned to read. But maybe your parents didn't. So we would have a divide. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's just funny. Because I'm an English teacher and my sister's a librarian. So I promise you my parents thought it was important <laughs> we know how to read. All right. So jumping ahead a little bit, we're going to go to 1848. That's only 24 years ahead. A little bit. I okay. Said. And we are going to be at the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention. Let's meet there. And so... At the convention, one of the things we're going to discuss, aside from voting rights, is this idea of education for women. And in the Seneca Falls Declaration, it says that men have denied women the facilities for obtaining education. All colleges are closed against her. And this is proof of men's tyranny over women. Interesting. Yeah. So women are saying you have this power over us because you are not allowing us to be educated. And that's true, right? Yeah. It's for sure true. Absolutely. Are we getting to the 20th century? In the 20th century, things begin to change. Um, Overall, education becomes more formalized. So the development of elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. So it stopped being like, educate them at home if you want. Or um, like Little House on the Prairie, we have grades K through 12 all in one room. Yeah. We start to see less and less and less of that. And we start to see the development of very, very specific colleges and schools. By the time we're in the early 1900s, like World War One, mm-hmm. we start to have whole new education programs open for women. Um, teaching's a big one. Mm-hmm. Nursing. Mm-hmm. And then home economics. The home economics. And this goes kind of back to that idea again of re- uh, Republican motherhood, right? So we have strong women raising strong citizens, mm-hmm. strong voters. In 1930, home economics becomes part of high school education. So it filtered down from colleges. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. To high schools. Uh, this is a formal program that is going to teach women all the things they're going to need to know in their life, such as what? Um, math, finance. Sewing. Just kidding. Cooking. Yeah. Sewing, cooking. Oh, uh, how to use the new appliances of the era, because there's new appliances coming. So like a washing machine. <laughs> That's the important technology we need yep. to learn about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is that, that we're moving that from college to high school, what does that say about our assumptions for women? Right, that they don't need college prep or job training, and that when they graduate from high school, they're going to stay home and then get married and then stay home. Yeah. I mean, that's our assumption. Yeah, based for on sure. That. Yeah. And then after World War II, and we've talked about this before, that changes again. We're going to see the second wave of feminism, and that starts pushing women into more and more and more college educations, Mm -hmm. which pushes them into professional careers. 
And today, actually, a majority of students seeking higher education are female. Interesting. Yes. 51%. So it's barely a majority. Yeah. But it's a majority. Yeah. There are more college students that are women than that are men. Now, that shifts when you get to grad school. Really? Mm-hmm. I thought it was still women. Well, I mean, if you're including everything that's post-undergrad, so medical school and JDs. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, not just us liberal arts people. <laughs> if you include all of it. MBAs. Like, but English majors. Okay, yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. All right. Um, so that's kind of where we're at right now with education. Okay. So female education, you'd say great progress. Great progress in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, I know 200 years feels like a lot for us, <laughs> but for a historian, it's really not that long. Yeah. You're like, that's a nap to yeah. a historian. Nap So that's Barbie. You know Barbie. A leader in all female education. <sighs> you know there's... Th- Do you know what year that was from? Uh, the 90s. Oh, really? Yeah. That late? Yeah. Oh. Uh, it's called Teen Talk Barbie. If it was like from the 70s, not that it's okay, but at least I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean... So the creator said, we just try to think of things that teen teenagers say. So why not just say school is hard or um, we should do a Barbie And there episode. are lots of things about Barbie that's positive. And there are lots of female career Barbies. But this is not a good look. No. Because this is really, I mean, even, even in conjunction with the other things she says, right? Do you have a crush on anyone? Whatever. I mean, they're just... Vapid. Vapid things to say and then go, math class is hard. Like it's. Well, and it's reinforcing a bias that's already there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if there's a Ken doll saying that math class is hard, I mean, I haven't seen it. I'd like to. (laughs) So I want to talk about what happens when girls sit in math classes. Okay. So the good news is that at this point in time here in the year 2019, boys and girls, when they take all of those standardized tests that children take, uh, boys and girls score similarly. So there is not a notable differential or achievement gap between boys and girls on standardized math tests. That also shows that there's not a bias in the test towards one gender or the other. Anymore. Anymore. And girls get relatively good grades in math classes overall. I mean, we're talking K through 12 here. There are gender differences when it comes to attitudes about math. And when it comes to, so you're, it's, you're more likely to hear a, a girl say that she hates math. I think we've both said that on this podcast. Yes. And in elementary school, the difference, the attitude dif- difference begins. So ultimately, boys or males are much more likely than girls or females to pursue math majors in college and to pursue careers in math-intensive fields like engineering and computer science. And you're saying that that attitude towards math starts in elementary school? That's correct. That is very young. We used to talk... I remember when I was a kid, this conversation started about the way girls were treated in math class, and there was implicit bias among teachers about the ways that boys are treated in class and the way girls are treated in class and the way boys are directed into math and science and even things like the science fair and the way girls were not. So that focus 
was very intense or intensive in research and training of teachers uh, starting about 30 years ago. And but, that was a subconscious bias. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think that if you asked a teacher, do you think boys, sh- you know, should be in math and girls should be in not, they would say no. But it's an implicit unknown bias. To okay. Yes. And even now, if you have teachers take uh, the like the hidden bias test that you can take, a lot of them still associate math with men and women with other subjects. I remember reading a study one time about college women in math classes, and they had some of the women come in just in the regular street clothes and take a test, and they had some women take the test in bikinis. And the ones in bikinis did worse because they were so focused on like what the men around them thought about what they were wearing that they weren't focused on the math. So I'd never thought about it before, how other people's perceptions of you would change what you're thinking about. That's interesting. I don't know... (laughs) Who thinks of this? Let's have girls put on bikinis and take math I'm going to guess a male researcher. Yeah, I'm going to guess. So the other thing is that the bigger achievement gaps have always been along class lines and right. along race and and language acquisition lines. I mean, the difference between girls and boys in math has always has existed until very recently when it's kind of evaporated. But the other... Achievement gaps are much bigger. Yeah. Reading gender gaps narrow during elementary years. Uh, So the longer people are in school, the lower the achievement gap gets. The better boys get, the closer they get to girls' achievement. But gender gaps in math grow as girls go through school. Okay. And we're thinking that's because they hear this message, implicit or not. Right. And there are fewer female math teachers which is why it's great that your sister's a math teacher. And also girls have math anxiety, lack of confidence when it comes to math. And anxiety and your attitude and your confidence are predictors of your later achievement and your career choices. Obviously, people are not going to choose fields if those fields give them anxiety or if they don't have self-confidence in the field. If I feel like I already can't do it, why am I going to pick that? Right. So elementary school teachers are given the advice that they should try to enhance girls' mathematical confidence. Okay, so it's not about ability. It's about... Right, because the achievement gap is gone. So now we're talking about what's going to... Their future in math and to get more women into math and science and engineering careers... It's now thinking about mathematical confidence. The other thing is that female teachers displaying mathematical confidence, again, this is kind of an issue of representation, female teachers displaying mathematical confidence in the classroom themselves, modeling this kind of spirit of let's figure this out, let's take care of this, let's use the skills that we have, let's conquer the problem. Those kinds of things, I guess, rub off on their female students. You know, thinking back, I don't think I ever had a female math teacher. I've never in my life had a female math teacher. Never. I never thought about that before, yeah. but I think it's true. Yeah. Maybe like elementary school because they taught you everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But once we start separating yeah, out the subjects. Starting in middle mm-hmm. school. Yeah. I don't think so. So the other thing that the National Council of Teachers of Math tells teachers is that girls gravitate toward professions that, quote, help people. Okay. Caregiver. So... Teachers should be exposing their students to the ways that math-intensive careers can help people. This is a little sketchy to me because I feel like it kind of reinforces this notion that women are nurturing and men are logical. But at the same time, 
it seems like a good way to attract girls to the field? Well, I think there is something to that women want to, and not just women, some men too, want to do something bigger than themselves. Yeah. And so it's not just about like the paycheck I get, but it's about if I can enhance the lives of others. Right. I mean, we both work at a community college and- I'm just here for the money, Missy. I don't care about other people. Then you are in the wrong place, Allegra. You're doing it wrong. (laughs) I mean, because we both know private sector, we could be making more money. Yeah. But we would not be- helping our students right so i think there's something to that uh so there is a stereotype that boys are better at math and again if you take an implicit bias test bias test which anybody can take they're free they're online if you just look for implicit bias tests there is one about women and gender and math um and that bias exists so the stereotype that boys are better at math has been fueled Uh, at least in part by suggestions that there are biological differences between boys' brains and girls' brains. So this idea that, for instance, boys are better at spatial reasoning than girls are, those kinds of myths have fueled and propagated this. And as recently as 2005, the president of Harvard, his name is Lawrence Summers, he said that he questioned the, quote, intrinsic aptitude of women when it comes to top-level math and science. So basically he's saying, I just don't know if these girls can do this. Right. They have less intrinsic aptitude. He tried to cloak it in these very academic terms, academic terms but what he's saying is yeah. inherent ability. Right? Your brain is not capable of doing top-level math and science. So luckily, by 2005, that's not a comment that goes over really well. And so he he got into a lot of trouble for that. But it is a a stereotype that sometimes comes to the surface, but more often is implicit. Right. The the associations that we make. And that's, that's another reason that representation is important, because representation is like the leading way to remove or lessen a kind of bias that you have. The more women you see doing math, the more female engineers you see. And that's why talking it becomes about... unremarkable. Yeah, right. And that's why talking about uh, women who have these careers, whether they've been doing it for, you know, 100 years ago and nobody knew about it or whether they're doing it now is important to kind of change that bias. Women now are earning 48% of undergraduate degrees in math. That's pretty good. Yes, but that's just math. And a lot of people who get degrees in math are doing it because they want to become teachers, so that, which is great. But when it comes to things like physics or engineering, women are still way behind. Okay. And if you grow up believing that, that boys are better at math, you avoid hard math classes, which is how I ended up taking statistics, one semester of statistics. That's the only math class I took in college. You're lucky. I had to take two. I mean, I was I was avoiding it because this is how bad it was for us. It the, seemed hard. The semester after I took college algebra, they created a new class called College Algebra for Liberal Arts Majors. Yeah, that sounds right. And I can only assume it was just addition. I think a lot of people have anxiety around math. I don't think it's just women. Oh, no, for sure. And I mean, yes, but when my students start English class, more over more students than not say I'm not good at English. I prefer things like math. Really? Yeah. I, I think I get the opposite in my history classes. I get oh, at least it's not math. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the other thing that people don't really like about English class is that there aren't defined answers. Yes. It's interpretive. Yeah. So, Misty, I read a nonfiction book. What? I did. I'm so proud of you. You should be. It was about a, a lady codebreaker. Ooh, sounds interesting. Her name was Elizabeth Friedman. What was the name of the book? The Woman Who Smashed Codes. Oh, it's a good title. Yeah, it's a great book. And Elizabeth Friedman was like a very cool woman. And I am, the whole time I was reading it, I was very surprised that I had never heard of her. And because there are lots of people and things that happen in the book that I have heard about. Is it like Forrest Gump where you just keep, like she keeps popping up and you're like, oh, I should have known that. Yeah. I mean, she helped crack the Enigma machine. All right. Well, tell me all about her. Okay. So early 1900s. Okay. So her father didn't want her to go to college and she didn't care. And she sent applications to multiple schools and decided she's going to find a way to pay her own tuition. That's pretty cool. At that time in like 1915, which I think is about when she was graduating, when you had a college degree and you were a woman, you taught high school or below. Right. Elementary, middle, or high school. About 90% of the professors at public universities were men. Yep. And only 939 women in the country, 939 in the whole country, got a master's degree in 1915, and only 62 got PhDs. Wow. Whole country in the year 1915. She gets a degree in in literature, and she's interested in Shakespeare. I promise it's getting to math. Okay. <laughs> he looked at me like, why are we talking about her then? So she gets a degree in literature. She's very interested in literature. Okay, so in 1916, she decides she wants to do something, and this is according to her, unusual and related to her skills in language and literature. She spent a lot of time in Chicago trying to find a job. On her way out of Chicago, she goes to a library. Okay. And she's just talking to a librarian about why she wants a job and what kind of job she wants. The library has a copy of Shakespeare's first folio, which is like the first, all of his combined works together. So she talks to the librarian about how she can't find a job and how she is really interested in language and literature. And the librarian's like, hey, I know a guy <laughs> who's looking for someone skilled in language and literature, who has a very unusual job. And his name is George Fabian. The librarian calls this guy. He shows up within an hour. Uh, he takes her to his compound. A compound. <laughs> yes. Very similar to compounds like Edison and Tesla had at the time. Awesome. So big campuses, laboratories, multiple buildings, secret things happening. Some of it is government contracted. Some of it is just random experiments. His is called Riverbank. And there's buildings, houses, cottages, dorms, labs, science tests, all kinds of secrets. They're doing things about genetics, plant genetics, anatomy. They're doing experiments with x-rays, things with electricity. Teddy Roosevelt often visited this compound. And this would be after he was president, right? Because it's 1916? Sure. I don't know. (laughs) When was he president? Before this. Okay. So there you go. So former president, Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. I knew that part. Um, So this crazy guy thought that Shakespeare didn't write any of his own plays, and he thought that Francis Bacon wrote all of those plays. You're making a face because it's a crazy theory, but he thought Francis Bacon did it. And in addition to that, in addition to writing all of this beautiful prose in Shakespearean English, that Francis Bacon wrote it in code. What? 
that there are secret codes hidden throughout all of Shakespeare's work. Okay, this is starting to sound like the ancient aliens guys <laughs> on the History Channel. I'm telling you, but it's it's amazing. So he hires a bunch of women to run what he calls a cipher school, cipher, C-I-P-H-E-R, cipher school, and he hires all of them in an attempt to break the code in Shakespeare's work. The code that doesn't exist? Right. It does not exist. It's 100% not true. Okay. Francis Bacon did not write Shakespeare's plays. And even if he did, there's no secret codes in them. But the thing is, she got trained in this way of looking at language mathematically. And so even though there is no code in Shakespeare, she got a lot of practice creating and breaking codes and working very close to government projects that were happening across Riverbank. So she... That's where she meets her husband. He's a geneticist, but he helps with the Shakespeare code breaking. And when the government needs code breakers, they're already contracting with George Fabian for other things. And he says, hey, I have people who can break codes. I'm going to take some people off my crazy Shakespeare project. As you should. Right. And give them to government service. Okay. So for the first eight months of World War One. She and her husband were the, and their little team at that creepy riverbank place, were the only code breakers for the entire United States. They broke codes for the State Department, the War Department, the Army, the Navy, and the Department of Justice. They did all of the code breaking for all of the United States, fewer than 10 people. That's crazy. Using the training they got from trying to decipher this not even present Shakespeare code. So she and her husband, William, were both cryptologists. They could write codes that couldn't be broken and they could break codes that were considered unbreakable. She's not nearly as famous. There's like statues of him in CIA headquarters and buildings named after William Friedman. She worked side by side with him. She collaborated in lots of their projects. A lot of their papers and publications she co-wrote or wrote most of. Um, And if you ask people who knew them, most of them would say that she was smarter than him. Oh, wow. Okay. But, of course, he is way more well-known historically now than she was. In fact, someone, one, one of the federal prosecutors who worked with them a lot told the FBI that Mrs. Friedman and her husband are recognized as the leading authorities in the country. But if you read, like, the history of code breaking, she's not really in there. She's kind of like the crazy or the colorful or the eccentric wife of William Friedman, the code breaker. She's kind of just like a footnote. So people have been trying to get her story out there more and more. Uh, And there are lots of cool things in her archives, like the letters she wrote her children were all in secret code. And so she was teaching her kids how to be code breakers. That's kind of sad, though. Why? Just like you have to find out what the code is to know what I'm telling you. And if you don't figure it out. They also, she and her husband used to have like code-breaking parties, the same way you might have like a murder mystery party now. They had code-breaking parties. And it, it was sad because it was something they were obsessed with and they were very good at and very interested in, but they couldn't really share it because their work was always obviously secret. Right. So they tried, they had these code-breaking parties. They kept a huge library because no one else was keeping a library. And they tried to make a code-breaking board game and sent it to Milton Bradley But But it was not successful. But so they were trying to share their love of code breaking their whole lives. Oh, yeah. Right. So they were doing all of this with pencil and paper and they were keeping all of the pieces of paper that they wrote on. So 
all of their, I mean, it, you know, it would take hundreds of pieces of paper sometimes to solve a code, and they would keep all of those pieces of paper, and they would bind them into a book. So they're really, like, showing their work? Yes, because, the right, the process is important, right? and sometimes they would have to go back. And also, if they ever wanted to train someone to do what they were doing... You have to show them you how. You have to show them the whole process. So in World War One, she helped break codes. And then after World War I, she worked for the Coast Guard, which was part of the Department of the Treasury. I learned so many things reading this book. (laughs) That's Uh, why you should read nonfiction sometimes. So she worked for the Coast Guard to do the rum running code breaking. She wrote in in letters to her friends that the codes that the rum runners were using were far more complex than the codes that she broke for the military in World War I. I guess they had more More, to lose. More to lose. (laughs) When they wrote about her in the newspaper, which they did during Prohibition because she had to testify in trials all the time, because what the defense always said is, you guys must have illegally gotten this information because how could you have known? And she had to go in and explain how she broke the code. Um, In the newspaper stories, she was always described as a pretty government analyst. Oh, nice. A pretty middle-aged woman. A pretty young woman with a Philly pink dress and a pretty little woman who protects the United States. Well, it's good that she was pretty. Yeah. And she, I mean, she faced off against the same lawyer who defended Al Capone. I mean, she had to sit in court and answer his questions. And at one point, he just said, this is not possible. This couldn't have been done. This is all a lie. And she said, who has a chalkboard? And they wheeled a chalkboard into the courtroom. And she got a piece of chalk and she broke it down, basically to prove that she knew what she was talking about. So she taught the jury basic code breaking in the courtroom. And then the headline was solved by woman. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they praised her but condescended at the same time. It was always, like, amazing. Like a party trick. Right. Like this girl doing math. Amazing that this woman could have broken these codes. Um, She had, when she worked for the Coast Guard, the only code-breaking unit in America ever to be run by a woman. Then in World War II, because she was already working for the Coast Guard, she started helping to break Nazi codes. Her husband this whole time is working for the army. So they live together. They can't discuss their work with each other, but they are doing the same kind of work. Man, that would be so hard. Right? Um, so her files are classified because they had to do with, you know, the war and stuff. So we still don't know exactly the extent to what she did. So she helped break Enigma codes, and she helped figure out how Enigma machines worked. And it's actually very cool. I mean, the Enigma machine was, of course, thought to be unbreakable. And it was a computer, or a machine, I guess, not a computer, um, with a bunch of rotors. I'm not going to explain how it works, because I am not 100% on it, but it's very complicated. And she figured out this kind of, two kinds of patterns that were happening. And so she was able to, like, decipher the code and work backwards to figure out how the machine was working. And her husband created a code encrypting machine that was used by government agencies and the president to send his own messages. That's really cool. So the book is called The Woman Who Smashed Codes. The author is Jason Fagone. I I would recommend it. It's nonfiction, Missy. I'm so proud of you. You should be. Okay, so you're going to tell us about another woman who I know about. 
From a movie. From a movie. Yes. yes. From a movie. I'm going to tell you about Katherine Johnson. Who worked for NASA. Who worked for NASA, who you may know from the movie. Right. Pl- played by Taraji B. Henson. I haven't seen the movie. That's who plays her. Okay. So, yes. She, there's, you've never seen it? No. There's a, um, also another amazing chalkboard scene where she has to show men that she can do math. She has to, like, climb a ladder and write on on this chalkboard. you got to watch it, man. The movie's Hidden Figures, yes. for anybody who hasn't figured that it out yet. That the movie is Hidden Figures. Yes. All right. So, she is born in 1918 in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Her mother's a teacher. Her father's a lumberman. And she is going to attend a segregated school Mm -hmm. early on. She just shows this remarkable talent for math. She just excels in it. So her family is going to completely rearrange their lives because for African-Americans, the school district didn't offer any schooling past the eighth grade. So if she wants to go to high school, they've got to do something else. Oh. So her mom and her are going to move 120 miles away just so that she can go to high school. Wow. And then they come home on school breaks and weekends sometimes. Yeah. Her father is going to stay back home and work so that they have the money to do this. Wow. The school she's going to attend, it's a high school, but it's on the campus of West Virginia State College. Okay. So that's now West Virginia State. Um, Her and her mother are going to be there for a few years, and then she graduates high school at the age of 14. Wow. Yeah. So she's just incredibly, incredibly bright. And then she enters uh, West Virginia State, which is a historically black college. She takes every math class they offer. Wow. She makes... Opposite of me. (laughs) Yes, and me. She takes um, some mentors on. So these professors are going to work with her quite extensively. And then she graduates in 1937 with degrees in mathematics and French. What? At the age of 18. What? Yes. So she's a woman. She's graduated from a university or college, and she's going to do the only thing that she thinks is open to her, and she begins teaching. High school. High school. Okay. A few years later, she's going to marry James Goebel, and so she left teaching, and then she is going to enroll in a- Because when you got married, you left your job. Uh, Sometimes legally, you had to. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, Public school teachers weren't usually allowed to be married women, because what if they got pregnant? And what if the students asked questions? How would we handle that, Allegra? Uh, with information? Okay, fine, <laughs> no, fine, not fine. That, not that. Um, so after she leaves teaching, she's going to enroll in a graduate math program. Nice. But she quits after one year. Okay. Because she got pregnant. And she was a little conflicted on what to do about that. Well, and there weren't any support structures not like at all. we have now. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, what's really interesting, though, about that first attempt at graduate math programs is that the president of West Virginia State had personally selected her and two other students to be the first black students to enter this program. Wow. Yeah, so it's a pretty high honor for that, even if she only did one year. Yeah. Um, Her husband dies in 1956, and then she's going to marry James Johnson a couple years later, so that's where it's Katherine Johnson. Okay. And then in 1953, she begins working for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which is NACA. Which Na- will later be NASA. NASA sounds so much better it than does. NACA. It does. So she's going to work for a computing unit. This was so confusing to me when I first watched this movie because they use the word computer to refer to a person who did math. Yes. Yes. And a computing unit was just a bunch of people who did math. Right. They were called human computers. Well, they were just called computers. 
Because we didn't need the human adjective until after we had mechanical machine computers. Right. So it's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So they're going to do really advanced, complex math that I cannot explain for you. Not at all. Not even a little bit. I think the word parabolic is involved at some point. (laughs) That's all I can tell you. Um, So these women who are in this computing pool, because that's what they were, they were the computing pool, analyzed test data and provided mathematical computations that were really critical for the early successes of our space program. But unfortunately, NACA was segregated. So they followed the federal laws regarding segregation, which meant that Johnson and other African-American employees had to use a separate restroom. They had to eat in separate facilities and they had to work in completely separate rooms than their white co-workers. What? Mm-hmm. So the office where she works they eventually start referring to them as the colored computers. Right? Isn't that horrible? I I guess you can't hear my facial expression, (laughs) but I'm sure you can imagine it. In 1958, NACA begins transitioning to NASA, and NASA is going to ban racial discrimination. So yay, right? Yay. 1958. Yes. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, they still had gender discrimination. So Johnson's not allowed to put her name on reports, even if all of the work in the report is solely hers. Her uh, male supervisor would have to put his name on the report and would just list her. Well, if a woman's name was on it, who would take it seriously? Um, She is the first woman to get her name on a report because a male colleague refused to put his name on it. And he did that as a way to help her. Okay. Okay. Because she had done the majority of the work. So he said, I'm not going to claim credit for this. So it wasn't like he didn't trust her work. Okay, got it. So her mathematical skills really just set her apart. And so there's one project where she's assigned to assist a male flight research team. And her skills are so impressive that they forgot to return her to the computing pool. They just kept forgetting to send her back. I like that. Yeah, that was their way of getting around some of the rules. So uh, during her years... I think this is the part that is primarily featured in the movie. I mean, it's the movie's not just about her. It's about several women. But the storyline with her, I think, is mostly with this male flight research team. Yes. And that's the scene with... Um, I didn't watch the movie. Uh, I feel like it's Kevin Costner. Sure. And then the guy from The Big Bang Theory. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, that's where they're calculating things for John Glenn. Yes. Yes. Okay. This is okay. exactly what I'm about to tell you about that. Oh, okay. So she is helping calculate um, some orbits and flight issues around flight paths. Flight paths. I know because I watched the movie. And they relied so heavily on her that John Glenn refused to fly his orbits unless she had personally verified them. Wow. He was like, I'm not doing it unless you got Johnson on this. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. So throughout the course of her history... At the NASA and NACA, she authored 26 or co-authored 26 scientific papers. Nice. She earned the NASA Langley Research Center Special Achievement Award. Mm-hmm. And she is one of the first African-Americans who held that role. And so we've talked a lot about representation. And that was one of her impacts there, showing that not only could a woman do it, but also a person of color can do this job mm-hmm. and do it really well. Yeah. She's going to be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 2015. And then last year in August 2018, she celebrated her 100th birthday. She's still alive. She's still alive. I did not know that. Yeah. She's 100 years old. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Like, she's, like, we're touching history almost. That's crazy. And, I mean, honestly, looking at your date, she was living and working much the same as Elizabeth Friedman. So, yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I think she has just so much in her life to admire. Yeah. I mean, how many times was she told like, oh, no, you can't do that because of who you are? And she decided, no, I can. I'm going to do it. Yeah. 
I mean, and there are lots of scenes like that in the movie, and I don't know how many of them are historically accurate or specific to her. Well, and the other thing I think it's really remarkable about her life is her talent is so obvious to everyone around her that everyone moves heaven and earth to help her succeed. Yeah. Yeah. They just realize how much of an asset she is. And they cannot afford to lose her. Well, and she makes sure people know yes, that she's an yes, asset. Yeah. Absolutely. So a lot of it is people advocating for for these women, but also a lot of these women just advocating for themselves. And I think bo- it was important to both of them to be a, a role model yes, for future for sure. Future female mathematicians. Absolutely. So we have a guest spot from the STEM Fatale podcast. So that's S-T-E-M, Fatal Podcast. And their whole podcast is profiles of women who have math and science achievements or math and science careers. Hey, Professors Posse. I'm Emily Gremlin. And I'm Emma Dilemma. And we co-host a women in science history podcast called STEM Fatal. We tell the life story of a female scientist in history in terms of her struggles, research accomplishments, and often the banana sexism Mm -hmm. that they face in their pursuit of science. Oh, yeah. And you've asked us to tell you about a favorite historical woman in math or engineering. And so we decided to talk about uh, one of our favorites, and that is Grace Hopper otherwise known as uh, Dr. Rear Admiral Grace Hopper. She's got a lot of titles. Many titles. Uh, Okay, so we're just going to get into it. Yeah. So Grace Hopper was born as Grace Brewster Murray in New York City in 1906 to a family that luckily believed in higher education for women. (laughs) One of the few families. Yeah. (laughs) She graduated from Vassar in 1928 and got a PhD from Yale in 1934. Wow. And for the 10 intervening years before she entered... Uh, doing different work in World War II, Grace Hopper taught uh, mathematics at Vassar. Along with a lot of other women we've talked about, like Cheng Chun Wu, Lee Smeitner, and Gertrude Elion, um, World War II actually opened a lot of doors for women in the sciences. And that's the time when we saw a lot of women joining different scientific fields. Though we've also talked about a lot of women escaping the Nazis, like a surprising number of female scientists who had to escape the Nazis. So a really interesting time for women in science all around. (laughs) Yeah, some pros and some cons. Yeah. So during World War II, the U.S. Navy actually put together an all-female division called the Waves. So cool. um, Which my great-great-aunt was in. And Hopper was assigned to Harvard University to work on the Mark I, which was the first electrochemical computer, electromechanical <laughs> computer. Electrochemical, <laughs> like a neuron computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, computer in the U.S. And Hopper and her colleagues used the Mark I for top secret calculations needed for the war effort. Like, I can't even imagine... And like this computer, it's like 10,000 pounds. So it's the size of this recording room. And they're just like, beep, 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 beep. That's what I imagine. Yeah. And it was in this computer where Hopper, she became known for using the term debugging Mm -hmm. because she found a moth in the giant computer. Yeah. Get it, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That moth that she took out of the Mark I is in the Smithsonian. Yeah, which Um, is pretty cool. Yeah. And so after World War II, Grace Hopper continued to work at Harvard on the emerging field of computer programming. 
And it's important to note that Hopper was not allowed to work as a professor at Harvard, though she had been so a Harvard insane. She'd been a professor at Vassar for ten years before, but at that time, Harvard did not allow female faculty. Um, unfortunately, this is a common theme throughout a lot of the women <laughs> we talk about. Many of these women were invaluable and were scientific equals with their male counterparts, but were often either not paid or were not given their rightful position. Yeah, exactly. And that's the case for Grace Hopper. And after continuing to be barred from a professor position at Harvard, she finally moved to the pr- uh, the private sector, and she worked as a senior mathematician in the 1950s, developing the first commercial electronic computer called the Univac. And so at this time, computers were becoming more common. And because new programming languages pro- were proliferating at an ever-increasing rate, the cost of programming and of translating these programs into new hardware was super costly. So Grace Hopper, to solve this problem... She and her team created the first compiler, which could translate English written instructions into computer-specific code, allowing coders to use the same language to write their code and to simply just use different compilers for different operating systems. And going either farther, Grace Hopper believed that programming languages should be as close to English as possible so that they were more intuitive and mm-hmm. less just symbols. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And she wrote a programming language called uh, Flowmatic, which is <laughs> so cool, <laughs> so weird, uh, which was then converted under her consultation into COBOL, which is one of the most ubiquitous business programming languages to date. Wow. And millions of banking transactions are still processed daily because banks don't want to evolve. Yeah. Grace Hopper was recalled to active duty at the age of 61. And it was at that time that she was also awarded the inaugural Man of the Year Award from the Data Processing Management Association. I just love that so much. The first ever Man of the Year. Just don't call Man of the Year Award. Call it the Data Processing Management Association's Award. (laughs) Less catchy, but, you know, also less gendered. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And Grace Hopper loved working and loved being a part of the armed services. And Mm -hmm. she retired at the age of 79 as rear admiral. And she was the oldest serving member in the service by the time she retired. She just would not retire. (laughs) And she just like wore her little suit every day. She wore her suit and she smoked her cigarettes. Yeah. And her hat. And she had her hat and she was amazing. And she won a ton of awards, got you know, 40 honorary degrees from different universities, was the first woman to receive the National Medal of Technology. And after her death, President Obama gave her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian award in the United States. She also has her own uh, missile destroyer named after her, which I think she's the only scientist to have that. (laughs) I would not want to be bombed by the USS Hopper. Or would you? If that be the way I would yeah. want to go. If know. it's going to be any missile destroyer, I want to be that it's one. That's true. It's true. So, yeah, all in all, Grace Hopper was an amazing mathematician and, and programmer, and her work was influential in the creation of modern programming language, which pretty much rules everything we do today. Yeah. Yeah. So she's fundamental. She's in our code. She's fundamental, too. <laughs> Great, going out on that pun. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this little (laughs) segment, you can listen to our full episode on Grace Hopper Mm -hmm. and listen to the rest of our podcast. And thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And uh, bye. bye.
Okay, so do you know about Ada Lovelace? I know a little bit about her. Go backwards back to 1815. <laughs> and interestingly, she's also related to poetry. So Elizabeth Friedman studied poetry and Shakespeare in college. Ada Lovelace is the daughter of Lord Byron. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. You didn't know that. I didn't know that. Okay. Um, she was born Augusta Ada Byron. Ada's better. And when she gets married, she's Augusta Ada King, Countess of Lovelace, which is why she gets called Ada Lovelace. Lord Byron gets credit, and if you Google her history or if you look her up in a book, a lot of times he gets credit for emphasizing her education. And the couple of the profiles I read said he called Ada his, quote, princess of parallelograms. Okay. Which is interesting because he left Ada's mother when Ada was just a few months old. And Ada's mother and Byron is the person who ensured that Ada was educated and tutored. It was important to Anne that Ada get all of this very rigorous education because (laughs) Anne believed her ex-husband, Lord Byron, was going insane and losing his mind. And she thought that a rigorous education could kind of guard Ada's mind from following the path of her father and going insane. So her father gets all the credit, but her mom did all the work? That is correct. Well, that's fantastic. Right. So she had private tutors, which were very rare for girls. Um, and, of course, she she's able to get these private tutors because her family is very wealthy. Exactly. There's a, there's a great deal of privilege happening here. But So she gets a lot of private tutors. And even for girls who had private tutors, it was rare for them to get mathematics education or mathematics tutors. But she did. Again, her mother thinking logic and reasoning and mathematics education will keep her from going insane like Lord Byron did. And there's no evidence to suggest that he actually went insane. So, <laughs> Well, um, you weren't married to him, Allegra. You don't know. That's true. Um, her mother also just, you know, side fact, her Ada used to have to lay still for long periods of time, just lay down and not move, um, because her mother thought that this would help her develop self-control. It sounds like her mother had some issues that she needed to work out. Well, sounds like Lord Byron had some issues. So... All right, then. Yeah. So lots of interesting things happening in this family. Lots. But Ada Lovelace grows up with a strong mathematical education and probably a very good sense of self-control. So when she's 17 years old, she meets Charles Babbage. And I don't know if you know who Charles Babbage is. I have no clue. But he created the first computer. Oh, okay. The first machine computer, not human computer. And she's interested in math. So when they meet... He says, I'm going to show you, he called it an analytical engine, which I guess is what a computer is. So he then introduces her to math professors. So they meet at a party. He says, let me show you about my analytical engine and realizes that she has a real aptitude and interest in math. And so he introduces her to mathematics professors. Again, this is the 1800s. Um, So this is the way that she gets a kind of side entrance into higher education she doesn't go necessarily to college but she has mentorships or relationships with mathematics professors and they give her further knowledge and insight in 1843 she translated a french article about analytical engines and she added her own notes okay so not only is she able to translate something about an analytical engine from french to english which is already hard enough but she adds annotations And her annotations were three times longer than the original article. Okay. 
So this is, I mean, as a woman who's good at math, right? this is how you become published or become notable for mathematic achievement. You can't write your own article, but you can annotate a translation. And her annotations are three times longer than the article. And in the notes, she describes how codes can be created for the engine to handle letters, symbols, and numbers. So before she wrote this, it was thought that analytical engines would only be able to be used for the analysis of numbers. She theorized a method for the engine to repeat a series of instructions, which is a process known as looping that computer programs use today. That's amazing. She offered up other concepts. And so for that reason, she's considered to be the first computer programmer because she imagined. So not even the first female, just the first. The first. That's amazing. Computer programmer. Yes. Because she imagined that computers or analytical engines could be programmed to perform certain functions that other people had not even imagined that they could be used for. And from a modern perspective, what she was writing is like she was a visionary because, again, she can imagine what a computer can do theoretically. That other people weren't even right in the same ballpark. And those are things computers are still doing, things we are still using to program computers today. So she speculated that, quote, the engine might act upon other things besides numbers. The engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent. That's really interesting. The idea that a machine could manipulate symbols in accordance with rules, which is what programming is, right? Creating rules right. and making a machine right. do something according to those rules. That, and that number could represent entities other than numbers is the fundamental transition from calculation to computation. So she totally got credit for all of this in her lifetime, That right? is not correct. She died in 1852, and it was 1950, so that's 100 years I guess 98 years before anyone hey, math before anyone gave her credit for her work before anyone acknowledged that she was in fact the first computer programmer. So she published this this article and she did a lot of work with Charles Babbage and everyone just kept on trucking like it was the men doing all the work and in 1950 finally someone looked back and said, "Hey, who's this lady? It looks like she was right." And in 1950 that's when they actually started using computers. Right. And it was even after 1950 that they started using computers for some of the ways that she had imagined. So somebody finally figured out who it was. And my husband is a computer program. Well, was a computer programmer for the Air Force when he was in the Air Force. And he had he says he had to learn about her as part of his education and training. So she is someone who computer programmers are aware of. Okay, so we talked about three amazing females and our friends talked about another. And I, want, I just want to put this all together because I'm an English teacher. And I like to have... And you like, can't have loose threads? I need a theme or conclusion. <laughs> so all of them overcome social barriers to education opportunities and jobs. Yes, for sure. And worked to improve the social context for other people. Yes. Especially Katherine Johnson yes. and Elizabeth Friedman vocally, visibly, intentionally recognizing the importance of representation, the importance of training and inspiring future generations of women. And I think two other things that I want to remark on. One is that they were pursuing their own interests. I wanted to say that, and they had families, right? Yeah. They didn't sacrifice all for their careers. Right. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, yes, 
I can't think of a better way to say it than you just did. And But they were pursuing their own interests. So it's not just remarkable that they were good at math. It's remarkable that they said, I want to pursue this career or I want to pursue this education or I want to pursue this interest or this publication because it's something I'm interested in and something I'm good at. And really for a woman in the 19th or early 20th century, that in and of itself is remarkable to say, I have an interest and I have an expertise and I want to use it as opposed to that's a nice hobby. Right, right, right. The other thing is they all accepted help from people around them. Yes. Which I think is sometimes important that we well, acknowledge. Well, I think most of us are going to have to accept help at some point, whether that help is a mentor mm-hmm. like Katherine Johnson had, whether it's a husband who can speak for you and people won't listen to you like yeah. Elizabeth Friedman had. I think you have to acknowledge the limitations around you mm-hmm. and then use other people to help overcome those limitations. Yeah, and I think the other thing you have to do is 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 sometimes be the one who helps someone else. Yes. Sometimes be the one who speaks up or advocates or says... Yeah, if you're the person with privilege... Yeah, absolutely. Use your privilege for the benefit of others. Absolutely. Just like those guys at NASA who forgot to send Catherine back. Or John Glenn. Yeah, John Glenn. Saying, did she check it? Did she check it twice? Which which is amazing because no one had more privilege in that organization at that time than John Glenn, right? right? He, I mean, if he said it, it went. And so what he chose to do was say, I'm going to acknowledge the work that this person of color and this woman is doing, and I'm going to make sure you all acknowledge it too. Well, and also he wanted to be safe and she was the best. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I mean, it took a, a, a kind of courage on his part as well. I mean, right. I'm not giving him credit for it, but it's a kind of courage on his part to say that. Uh, I think you know, allies should be acknowledged. Yeah. yeah so it's... in a group of all white men sitting around, I assume, smoking cigarettes and <laughs> chortling. I don't know what they're doing. That's what they did in the movie. Hey, Misty, what's next in your lady life? So I think I am going to have to go watch Hen Figures. I still can't believe you haven't seen it. I just don't watch movies, but I'm, I'm on this one. I'm going to do it. It's good. I believe you. Okay, fine. Allegra, what's next in your lady life? Man, I am leaving for Las Vegas, literally, in just a couple of days. I'm going for a work conference, Instructional Technology work Council. Work conference. I mean, we're, our boss is going, our best guest Christina is going as well. But yeah, we're going to do some presentations on online classes, do some learning, uh, see Penn and Teller. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, you guys need to go do the zip line in Old Downtown. That's not happening. That's super fun. I don't even want to watch other people do it. So, no, it's not happening. Bring me a postcard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and I think I still have some math anxiety. And I'm Allegra, and I'm going back to reading fiction. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Pretty great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Profess Hers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, 
or by email, same address, professors at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all of those things. And we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, the benefits of equality really add up. Yeah. <laughs>